All right. You're in James 2. You could all wrap it up to say this. James is writing to the Hebrew believers scattered abroad. That's what James 1 says, 1-1. To the believers, the Hebrews, the, the church, the saints scattered abroad. And some theologians and historians believe this is in reference to the persecution of Acts chapter 8 when they arose in a great persecution and they went everywhere taking the gospel that James, now the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, He's writing to those that have been scattered, and he's trying to encourage them. And so there's things we must keep in mind. Uh, who's on the projector tonight? I want to pull up New Living Translation, Ben, James chapter 2 here in a moment. Have it ready, verse 1. Uh, I want to show you something cool, though. Go with me to Acts 12. James becomes the pastor at the Jerusalem church in Acts 12. This is, to me, I read this, and this makes me laugh. It also lets you know it's okay to be a chicken and run. And you'll see what I'm saying here in a moment. All right, Acts chapter 12. Peter's been arrested when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews to kill James, the brother of John, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So John, uh, James, this, this James had been beheaded. Now, the other James we're talking of, James, the Lord's half-brother. And James, the Lord's half-brother, he was a younger brother, just to be clear. Because that's how it works. Because gender's not fluid, though your understanding is. So he's arrested, he's in prison, but the saints made intercession and they prayed, 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 prayed. Peter knows he's under a death sentence. He's going to be beheaded because that's what they did to James. So the angel comes, shakes him, wakes him, opens up the doors. Peter runs to the house. He knows exactly where they're praying because the saints of God know where to hang out. That's their peer group. That's their peer group. They got free time and what are they doing? They're meeting to pray for their pastor. All right. Uh, verse 13, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel called to hearken named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told Peter, uh, told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. They said, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished because it's Peter. And this shows you that your prayer doesn't have to have a whole lot of faith. Just pray because they're shocked. This is what they're wanting, and they don't even believe it's been done. Leave us alone. We're praying for his release. <laughs> well, it happened. No, that's not possible. <laughs> We're praying for his release. It's more plausible that it's his angel, whatever in the world that even means, because it looks just like Peter, apparently. But Peter continued knocking when they had opened the door, saw him, they were astonished. <laughs> But he beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went another place. He left town because it's not safe for him to stay there anymore because he just broke out of jail. What's Herod going to be doing? looking for him. He's a wanted man. So he says, look, I'm safe. I'll catch y'all later. And he's gone. He leaves Israel and begins to do other ministry work because it's no longer safe. I don't know why some saints stay to their own demise, flee and live to preach another day. No sense of being a martyr if you don't have to be. And the Lord didn't just release him so he could be recaptured. The Lord's not into catch and release and catch. And then behead, come on, be smart. So it's at this point that James becomes the, the uh, pastor of the church at Jerusalem. 
And this book is written about, or this epistle is about 48 AD, so you're talking 16 or so years after the ascension of Christ, which would roughly correspond approximately with the timeline of Acts 8 and then into Acts chapter 12. So, verse 2. My brethren, actually, let's read this in the New Living Translation because this is going to kick really good in a more modern paraphrase. I've explained to you why we do like the New Living Translation. It uses a dynamic equivalence as opposed to a normal equivalence where it paraphrases some phrases but then directly translates or directly word for word translates others. And we just have to be aware of that on occasion. So, James 2 1. Then I. Nope. I'm saying, James, this has got me in Zechariah. I have a little glitch in my app here. It's like, then I looked up and saw the angels. Like, that's not James 2. <laughs> that was my Bible study last night. I'm in Zechariah. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Now, one of the themes of the epistle of James is that true faith produces good fruit. He goes on to talk about that at the end of this chapter. You can say you have faith, but let's see the good works that it produces. Now, what he's about to talk about is the cultural issue they're having in the Jerusalem church between the rich and the poor. But this application fits any scenario. What if it's in the bush of Africa and everybody's poor? Well, maybe in Kenya, for example, they have a tribal dispute between the Lua and the Maasai. Well, this would fit, even though money's not in play. So the question we would then ask is, who's your favorite people? Because everybody's a bigot. Contrary to critical race theory and the woke tarred professors of our universities, everybody is a bigot. Everybody can be prejudiced because prejudice is of the heart. It has nothing to do with majority or minority. That is what is called critical race theory. And it's a Marxist philosophy. So who is your favorite people? Who is your peeps? In a room, if you go into a room, and let's just say it's diverse in the true sense and in not the university sense, if it's truly diverse, who do you gravitate towards? Because those are your people. And according to James, you could be prejudiced and your faith be inadequate. So who are your people? Who do you identify with? We're, we're dealing in a generation of identity politics and and we tend to associate in our culture, we have been, in our nation, we've been taught to divide along color lines. In Africa, they divide along tribal lines. It's not a color issue there. They're all the same color. And all of us, except for the Africans present, could go there, and we wouldn't see a difference at all, but they can see a difference. Oh, you can tell he's, he's from the Shona tribe. Why? Look at his cheekbones. You can tell he's Maasai. How can you tell? Look at his ears. You can tell... Bike, by the way, he has his teeth done. We couldn't tell the difference. So the question again to ask, who's your people? Because James is bashing his people here. He's writing to those that have scattered abroad who were his former disciples. And he says, you know, uh, it's, it's a shame to claim you have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others. So who are your people? Do you welcome everybody or just your favorite color? Now, we all have this in us. Do you like somebody better if you find out they're white? 
The Scudders had their right-hand guy, Bishop, uh, not Magaga, Wampamba, negotiate for him, them to rent some property, and they got the Ugandan deal. Because if they found out they were whites, different price set. So they would be treated differently if they found out their skin color. So that white privilege that the professor talks about is hogwash because it ain't working for them. The privilege is you get to pay more money if they find out you're white. Yeah. And Nick said the same thing of being in Jordan, that the Westerners have a privilege for being there that isn't so partial. Do you find out you like somebody better if you find out they're black? Your prejudice. I haven't, did we, didn't Martin Luther King tell us that it shouldn't matter about the color of our skin, but the content of our character? Didn't he get shot for making statements like that? And we still don't believe him. I don't even like Martin Luther King. Not for his civil rights, but the fact that he was a dirty preacher. Great civil rights leader. I wouldn't let him stand in the pulpit if he was alive today because I don't support adultery. But a great statement that we would be judged not for the color of our skin, but for the content of our character. James says the same thing. It's, it's, a, it's a lame faith if you favor some people over others. So who do you favor? Because we all have it in us somewhere. And we got to figure out where that prejudice, that bigotry, or that favoritism is because our people are Christian people. Red, yellow, black, white. At least the Baptists put the white folks last on that song. But probably only because it rhymes with sight. So our privilege is used to rhyme better in a child's song. Our people should be the people of God. And when you find out somebody's born again, that ought to be the end all, do all, say all. Praise God, born again. Tell me about how you serve our God. Tell me what our God's talking to you about. What's the church in your nation facing? What's the church in your community dealing with? How can I pray for you? You come home and you don't say, I found a fellow black. I found a fellow white. No, you say, I found a fellow believer. We're on the same team. It's stupid to think your teammates have to share your color. Now, how shallow is that? I'll tell you how shallow. It's only skin deep. And that's a shallow faith when what excites you is melanin. And you can't even explain how it works. But you've been taught by your retarded culture to idolize it, to exalt it as chief supreme. Amen. Verse 2. For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. We might say, suppose someone comes into your church and one's black and another's white. Which one do you gravitate towards? Do you white folks gravitate towards the whites and avoid the blacks? Do you blacks gravitate towards the blacks and avoid the whites? James is condemning. He's saying this is unacceptable. This is just as much as ignoring poor people and cheering for rich people. It's just as ignorant. If you give, verse 3, special attention and a good seat to the person of your favorite color, but you say to the one who's not your favorite color, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, 
Doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Well, that's good preaching. Fits really good here in the South, in the post-BLM, wokery era. This stuff gets into the church. It gets into us. Let's read it again. Verse 13, or 3 and 4, I'll change it for our context. If you give special attention and a good seat to the person whose color you like, but you say to the person whose color you don't like, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Now, I'll remind you, God is a spirit. So we don't care what the vessel looks like. We want what the spirit is on the inside of them. And if they're born again, I don't care if they're yellow. I don't care if they're ashy gray color. I don't care if they're purple. If they're born again, I want what they got. This discrimination, doesn't it show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. He's like, all right, I'm not done. Draw closer. You think this would be an encouraging letter. You've been scattered because of persecution. Gather around, everybody. Pastor hugs. He's like, you bunch of bigots. <laughs> You're suffering. Bunch of bigots. How stupid are you? All right. Well, could this, did Paul write us one? You don't want to read that one either. That was even worse. <laughs> were there any TBN apostles that were writing letters? Can we get one of them? How to have our best Tuesday ever? Money cometh to me now? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. How hasn't God chosen the color you don't like in this world to be rich in faith. So for the whites who are kind of still a little prejudicial against blacks because you're Southern trash, <laughs> I got to get my equal licks in. I've never found such great faith as in Africa. And one of my, you guys know my dearest father was Pastor Okwokwo, a Nigerian I mean, pygmy, you know, Five and a half feet tall, faith that no matter where he prayed, your insides shivered and, and quaked because God honored him over a prayer over Mama Rosa Stromboli. He could invoke the presence of God that quickly. Hasn't God chosen the color the South hates to be rich in faith? Or how about you blacks that still believe the victim mindset? You don't like whitey. Your continent that you claim to come from wouldn't have the gospel if it weren't for whitey. And how many whiteys died on the black continent to bring the gospel to a people with bones in their nose, cannibalizing one another, worshiping demons and going to hell in a loincloth living in the friggin' Stone Age while the Europeans traveled the world by the stars and theodolites. So whatever your color is, God's using them to do something mighty for him. And whatever color you hate, God's using them to do something mighty for God. Yeah. Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor that color you don't like. Isn't it the rich or that color you don't like who oppress you and drag you into court? Why would you honor people you don't like, like the whites? You're white. Don't white people make fun of our faith? Why would you honor them over black folks? Or if you're black, don't black folks mock you? Don't black folks kill each other? at a higher rate than whites? I mean, that, nobody likes to talk about that. I thought black lives matter, but they seem to be really good at killing each other in unprecedented rates. It's a cultural thing. It's an inner city cultural thing. Even me stating that makes you uncomfortable. 
That means you're immune to statistics and truth. See, we can't afford to dishonor anybody God died for. Our, our people are not our color. Our people are those in the kingdom. Our people are those in the kingdom, whether they're Hispanic or Asian or Slavic or Pacific Islander or good old Cracker Whitey or black or European. That's our people. You dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't love your favorite color as yourself. Love your neighbor. Love your brother in Christ. This is written to the Jews who were looking at the fellow Jews, part of the same inheritance. We ought to love those who are part of our same inheritance. Born again, that's our people. Born again ones. That's who our allegiance is to. I don't have an allegiance to Scotch-Irish Americans. I don't even know who those people are. I don't have an allegiance to white Europeans. I have an allegiance to Jesus Christ and his sons and daughters. That should be your allegiance. Yes, indeed, it's good when you obey the royal law. It's found in the scriptures. You're, you're, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. Ah, oh, so again, sort out who your favorite person is. Find out who you don't like. Some of you are older than me. 9-11 was very effective or efficacious on your soul. You have a prejudice against Arabs because you saw them fly airplanes into our buildings in our Pentagon. And so there's a prejudice in you. I was there, I, not there at 9-11. I, I watched it on television live at the office. I lived through it, but I don't have a prejudice against them. Everybody's got a prejudice somewhere. Who's the person you wouldn't walk across the room and witness to? Who's the person who, if they were a believer, you wouldn't have them in your home because it's not your type of people? Sin. James calls it sin. You are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. Favoritism is guilty of breaking the law. Not, not the favoritism of God that he gives towards those who are in faith and grace. A favoritism, a partiality based on carnal whims and carnal values. That's a sin. And we got to be bigger than that. we got to get over it. When I first took over the church, we were kind of neck deep in an anti, not an anti, like just a little subtle, racist, southern, white, trashy attitude. And I love that in those days, the black folks in our church were the highest educated. I cheered for that. I was like, yeah. I just wanted some toothless hick from DeKalb County to come in and make some racial slur against blacks. And I could ask them, how high are you educated? just to say, you don't know what you're talking about. I, I cheered for my brothers in Christ so educated to put to shame a racist little community. But now we know racism runs pretty deep in the black community too. And I've had friends that were a paler black, high yellow as they call it, but I think that's an offensive term. I don't know. He said, Pastor Chris, I'm not black enough for the blacks and the whites don't know what to do with me. So even my, Frank's nodding his head, even the blacks don't like me because I'm not their favorite color black. That's an inter-black prejudice. To me, it's the stupidest thing in the world. It's an idolatry based on sight and we don't walk by sight. I mean, really, who in the world even cares about our color? It's the dumbest thing in the world. Some blacks are very light skinned and then you have like a Wanda Dingwall who gets darker than mahogany. And I don't even know what runs through her blood except for super melanin. <laughs> Uh, 
And I've, I, we were trained in the chaplaincy program by a chaplain out of uh, Florida. And this was a black man, but he was so light-skinned, I just stared at him like, uh, I'm pretty sure you're black. I'm not sure. It's like looking at a big woman as, you know, when you're expecting, it's like, this could go either way. This really, we could flip a coin and I would lose either way. But this guy, great chaplain, tremendous man of God. I was like, I'm pretty sure you're black, but I'm not willing to risk anything. I'm like, but if I act like you're white, that's probably offensive too. I don't get memorandums enough on TikTok to let me know how to treat a situation like this. Here's the thing I could tell about this man. He was Pentecostal, full of the Holy Ghost and love helping police. Former Navy officer, I mean, just buttoned down and like, I'd follow him anywhere. But are you pregnant or not? I'm not. There's a lady friend of mine who's pregnant, hadn't seen her a couple months, and I saw her two weeks ago. And she came out uh, where we're at this building, and I said, Hey! And I thought, Oh, don't take it, don't risk it. I said, Congratulations! And she said, On what? <laughs> I said, Please don't do that to me because she said, What are you talking about? She said, you're not insinuating I'm pregnant. I said, oh, please tell me you are. She said, I am. I'm doing May. Uh, oh. Like, uh, man, so you know, how do you even start a conversation like that with a really light-skinned black guy? Like, and they say, I'm not black. See how convoluted and stupid it gets? How about we just be people? And why can't I just ask you, hey, man, so like, what's your heritage? And why is that so offensive? Where do your people come from? Like, what's your genealogy? What's your ethnicity? And we've just been conditioned to be offended at absolutely everything. Verse 9, if you favor some people over others, it doesn't even matter rich or poor at this point. If you favor some people, and the implication is a carnal favoritism, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. Now watch how worse it gets. Now remember, James is talking to Jews who've converted to Christianity and he's dealing with them from the law of Moses. He says, verse 10, for the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who's broken all of God's laws. This is a double punch to their gut because they're thinking, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. And he's saying, you don't love your neighbor as yourself. So you know what? You're guilty of violating the whole law. And that means something to them as Jews who become born again. They know they are wicked, they are vile, they are contemptible, they need to be sacrificed for again. He just loads the entirety of the law on them as transgressors of all of it simply because they have a partiality based on a color or a dollar amount. Amen. And he doesn't say them, he just insinuates them. The person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws for the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. And honestly, to have, to have a joy for any person is freedom. To be excited to sit by anybody, to find commonality in Christ despite accent, despite tradition, despite culture, despite last name, or even what your people 30 years ago did to my people 30 years ago. To, to avoid all that, to ignore all of it, and just walk in the love of Christ, there's a freedom there. 
The devil doesn't want us in that kind of freedom. He wants us begrudging something that happened in the Ottoman Empire 500 years ago. I'm still bitter over that. You don't even know where that was. Like, well, at least we got Ottomans out of it, and my feet have a place to rest. Wasn't that a big furniture war? <laughs> no, that's not that. There will be no mercy. This just keeps getting worse. I don't think modern preachers teach the Bible. This is James talking to exiles who are being persecuted. And now he's like, don't worry about those Gentiles. I'm coming for you. You'll want some Gentile mercy because you're getting none from me. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. So you know what? The modern woke tardy mindset is we, we're looking for microaggressions. I would ask you to reject that notion to hell. Because if you look for a microaggression, you will find it. And you ought to look in the mirror first because you're very offensive. And if you can't say, man, I aggress myself every day, then you're not being realistic. Why don't we show mercy? You know, I don't get offended if they can't pronounce my name. I get the culture. Like, so I'm communicating with Africans. They are, their names, their surnames are different. So my name is Chris McMichael. They call me Michael forever because they think that's my first name. And I'm like, did I get the wrong email? Oh, this is how they do things. I'm not offended. We, you've been taught in the last five years to be offended if they can't pronounce your last name. It's not racist if I can't pronounce your last name. Maybe your last name's weird. It's racist if you can't pronounce my first name. Your mama made up your first name, losing at Scrabble. She doesn't know how to pronounce it. She's just making it up. And you know the county clerk is like, whatever, just files it. How about we cut some mercy to each other? How much have you and I transgressed our God every day? How much do we transgress our spouse how much do we transgress the laws of the land and we won't show mercy? What's being done to the church on this racial era is a demon. And if you're not smart enough to pick up on it, I don't know if you walk with Christ. Because when you walk with Jesus, man, you just cover a multitude of little dumb things. If we don't show mercy, you don't get any mercy. There will be no mercy shown. This comes back to seed time and harvest. You reap what you sow. But if you have been merciful... God will be merciful when he judges you. He's talking to outcasts and scattered vagabonds about the judgment of God coming upon them. And he's still not saying, I feel so bad for you. We're going to collect an offering and send it to you. He's dealing with them about their Christian character, even though they're scattered throughout the diaspora that is Judaism at the time. Verse 14, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Whoo, now salvation's being questioned. <laughs> I'm telling you, James just keeps digging it deeper. He went from no mercy to, are you even saved? <laughs> Partiality, favoritism, favorite people. <laughs> See if I can get this right. Darwin, Charles Darwin's seminal work on the origin of species. The full title is On the Origin of Species in by Means of Natural Selection in the Preservation of Favored Races. 
by means of natural selection uh, in the preservation of favored races. Nobody ever talks that Darwinian evolution was all about eugenics. It's good Victorian science books have like titles this long. <laughs> what good is it if you have faith but don't demonstrate it with your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no clothing or food or no food or clothing. And you say goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. <laughs> but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. He's still hearkening to the poor person they don't like. What good does that do? Don't call your least favorite color a brother or sister in Christ and not treat them like a brother or sister in Christ. Because James is saying, I don't even know if you're saved. You, you call yourself a Christian, but you have your favorite color. I don't even know if you're saved. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Now, this is where the Calvinist freaks out. This is where Martin Luther freaks out. But James has said it all along. Before there was a Protestant Reformation, before Martin Luther nailed his theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church Castle, James said, see, faith isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. So this comes back to our walk with Christ, Jesus. If we're truly walking with him, it's going to change our life. If we're truly walking in faith, it's going to produce a different set of actions. Whether you're saved or unsaved, you're producing actions. You're producing works. I mean, you're a bundle of energy. You eat calories to produce energy to accomplish work. No matter whether you're saved or lost and going to hell, whether you're a Muslim or Hindu, a pagan, an atheist, a Christian, a Democrat, a Republican, your life produces work. But when you're a Christian, it should produce a different kind of work. And that different kind of work is proof that you have genuine faith in Christ. So coming back to our congregation here, because we've been on the chopping block with the Lord, because he gave us six months since he rebuked us last, and some of you didn't do anything with it. Can you even say you have any faith if you have stayed the same in six months? If Sunday's sermons hit you as just as hard as six months ago did, I would say you have no faith because you've not changed. You're the same. And James is saying the same thing. And he's saying it to those who are in exile under hard tribulations. That's like kicking a man when he's down, but James is doing it by the Holy Ghost. Because if you don't have Christian character and if you don't have true faith, we can send you an offering and feed your stomach, but you're just going to go to hell full. You see, verse 17, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless your faith produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. Unless your faith is changing your life and changing what you're producing and changing how you live, it's dead, useless faith. It's just what my dad would call said faith. And in that case, confession is cheap and hollow. Talk is cheap. We'd say put up or shut up. Verse 18, now some may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? Show me you walk with Christ. Show me you walk with the Holy Ghost. Show me you're really spirit-filled. Show me you have a walk with God. Some of you here don't look at your Bible in between services. Some of you don't open your Bible. Some of you don't even open your Bible when I'm teaching from it. I'm shocked. I shouldn't be. Like, I'm a teacher. 
we always look at no less than 15 or 20 scriptures and you don't even open to follow along. I'm like, what do you even do with your God? I'm like, are you on your husband's faith or what? I'm not carrying you. I can't fix you. I don't disciple you. Like, what is this service? Just a checkbox for you? You get emotional at the altar. You laugh and dance at a prophecy. But in between that, six months, eight months, ten months apart, what do you do? Nothing. Classic Cookville. Classic Upper Cumberland. Cheap confession, no fruit. Go where got there yesterday. How can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Pastor Vaughn used to preach, show us a changed life. Show us a changed life. Show me the fruit of God in your life. Show me that God walks through your life and touches this and rearranges that and fixes this and confronts that. Show me the joy he comes by being in your life. Show me the peace he brings by being. But honestly, church... Some believers, even in our congregation here, I can't even tell you're saved. Gossip, slander, bellyache, look down, don't take notes, still the same, mopey, weird, dopey, prejudiced, bigoted, ignorant, lazy. I, I, I think if God's in you, it's going to do something. You know, like even in the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God fell, everybody fell down. The glory fell, so did everybody else. There was evident, God's here. There ought to be some kind of change in our life that proves we have this God whose Bible we dust off once a week. There ought to be some evidence. And James is saying it's in the way you live. It's in how you act. And he starts by saying it's how you act towards people. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith. For you believe that there is one God. Good for you. You hear the sarcasm. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. Because we sure don't. <laughs> you have faith in God. Good for you. Even the nut jobs we evangelize. Say, oh, yeah, I believe in God. Oh, you sound like half my church. The half that's not going to heaven. <laughs> I was just talking to another pastor friend of mine. He said, I know at any given time in my church, he has a large church, it's over a thousand. He said, I know at any given time in my church, a third of the people present won't be here in a year. We had that conversation just today. At any given time, I know there's a third of these people, they won't even be here a year from now. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Faith is easy to confess. It's a lot more difficult to live. But if you start confessing it, God's going to start holding you and I accountable to it because we're justified by our words and we're condemned by them. So if we're going to say we're Christians, he's going to inspect us. Now, think about the fig tree, Mark 11. All of it's a giant parable for a cheap confession. So everybody wants to know, why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Very simple. There's a little bit of a botanical explanation. Fig trees bear figs first, and then the leaves come second. So it's a lived parable in that Jesus comes down from Bethany, which is house of figs. It's on top of the Mount of Olives. He sees a fig tree afar off, having leaves. So he approaches it because he's hungry. 
he wants to have something to eat. Now, mind you, this is the week before Passover, and the figs don't come until August. So even this is an anomaly because this thing is fruiting or leaving way before its proper season. All right? He comes down, he lifts the leaves because if it's got leaves, it should have figs because figs come first, then the leaves. He lifts the leaves, he finds no figs. And the Lord doesn't give it a hug and say, I understand. It's been a hard day's night. But when I come home to you, I know the things that you do, they make me feel all right. No, that's that seeker-friendly preacher who's probably having an affair. He looks at it, no figs, and he curses it. and says, no man will eat fruit from you forever. So what's it represent? Israel. Because Israel's declaring they're righteous. Israel's declaring they have the fruit of God. Israel's declaring it, but there's no actual fruit. So they bear the leaves of a fake confession. And their confession, if I'm confessing I'm a believer, if I'm confessing I have fruit, then when you lift them, you ought to be able to find fruit. And yet it's before Passover. And what this also indicates to us is that you cannot bear the fruit of God before Christ dies at Passover. And they're declaring they were righteous. So he curses them. And God has never used Israel since. And they fulfilled it. They were destroyed in 70 AD, scattered abroad, and God has never used them as a people in the last 2,000 years. It's a lived parable totally fulfilled by their own decisions to have a confession and be fruitless. And here's where you and I fall under this gamut or this gun. We confess ourselves to be born again, spirit-filled, God-seekers, God-fearers, God-lovers, and our life looks like Cookville? We're declaring we got leaves. And does the Lord find anything under them? Because he doesn't need leaves. It harkens back to Adam and Eve's fig leaf apron to cover up their nakedness. Maybe if I just talk more, people will believe it. Cheap talk, no walk. Scary. Let's finish this up. Hopefully we can get there. Yep, I think we can do it. How foolish can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions? He showed he was right with God by how he lived. When he offered his son Isaac on the altar, you see his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. His actions made his faith complete. How you live completes your faith. How we live for our God every day, at home, in the morning, on the job, that demonstrates our faith. Talk is cheap. We are a word of fake believers. We've learned how to pepper things with a positive faith confession, and it's become nothing but upper Cumberland superstition. And it so happened, just as the scripture says, and so it happened. Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. If you don't live for God, you're not his friend. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. It's pretty clear. We're shown to be right with God. Now, I would say it this way. When your life is growing in Christ and you're changing, you're right with God. Not perfect. No, we're never perfect. We don't claim to be perfect. But when we're changing, that proves we're right with God. You can't live and stay the same and claim to be right with God. You're called the walking backslidden. Every church is full of them. 
I'm glad you come. Just wish you would change. But you're like the guy that hangs out in the weight room just talking to everybody. We call those posers. We appreciate the monthly contribution that keeps the lights on and the weights clean, but you could really benefit more if you'd actually put some effort to your membership. Amen. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by the faith, not by faith alone. I'd say not by our cheap confession. Rahab the prostitute. Oh, now he's calling us a bunch of whores. Is another example. I love, the, I love the American casualty of this translation. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Even a whore can be made right with God by how she lives. She's a whore. She's a whore. She's a whore. But she hears the message and she receives the message and it changes her life. That's what made her righteous. We hear the message. We hear the message and we do nothing. So we stay whores. Whores with notebooks full of sermon notes. I mean, you go from Abraham to a whore? Not a huggy epistle. I almost like James, like, all right, we use a man as an example. I should use a woman as an example. Rahab. And I'm sure the scribe's like, I don't feel good about this. Shut up. I'm writing this. Well, you're writing it. I'm Rahab, write it down. I feel the Holy Spirit on this one. <laughs> Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. So what's, I'll say it this way. Faith without good works is dead. Let me say, what is the good work your life is lacking? It's going to be the thing that stinks in your life. That's the good work you need to work on. We're good at church works. We're good at bed babies. We're good at evangelism. We're good at worship. We're good at hospitality. We're good at cleaning. We're good at all the things that we do in the house of God. But the good work that you need to work on is the work that your life is deficient in. It's the work that makes your life stink. That's the good work. I do all sorts of good works. Great. But one thing is needful. Fix the area that stinks. Don't come up here and work more. Take that energy and work on you. Start, this is noble, start reading your Bible every day. I, I almost wish like the Holy Ghost with like a writing on the wall would just write how many hours a day or a week, how many times a week you actually get in your Bible. The old school churches put up the offering. The old, old churches put up the names of people and how much they gave. They put all the names up there. You could read it in the bulletin if the church got too big for the board. And they'd show what everybody gave every week. We don't do that. But that's old school. Wouldn't it be interesting if the Holy Ghost would reveal how much time you spend in the Bible every week? That'd be a good work, wouldn't it? I don't think that's a cult requirement. Just read your Bible. Oh, I had another thought. Pray. Like not just over the food you don't need to eat. But pray daily. Like almost like there's an epistle that's pray without ceasing. That would mean like don't miss a day. 
How about we do these? Why don't we start with these good works till we're different? And then how about this? How about wherever your life is weak or stinks or you've been failing God for 10, 12 years, put all your effort on that. That's, to me, that's wisdom. That's common sense. If you're working out and you have a weak muscle group, you don't ignore it. You find somebody who can tell you an exercise to work on that muscle group. That's all we're saying here spiritually. Wherever your life stinks, and you already know it, I don't have to tell you, you're smart. Start focusing on that spiritual muscle group. Let that be the good work that your faith accomplishes. And that gets you off of God's chopping block. Wouldn't it be nice to live there? It would bring you confidence. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because half of you would be lying anyway. But how many of you can say, I am confident I am 100% right with God today, as far as I know. And what I do and what I've done, I'm 100%. I'm doing everything I know to do. He could add me something later. He can do something to me tomorrow. But right now, to the best of my ability and knowledge, I am right with God. Now, I know we're only right in Christ Jesus, so don't get legalistic on me. But my point is, I'm doing everything I know to do. I don't have it all mastered, but I'm working on it every day. Not many of us could say that because our conscience condemns us because we know we're not walking with our God. Though we claim that we love him and that we are born again and spirit-filled. And we believe we have wonderful doctrine. We just don't want to use it. It's just like a Pokemon card. Got to collect them all. And once you do, what do you do with it? Just a weird hoarder. Who needs an adult hobby? So what will you do? Focus your faith where you need good works to improve your walk with him and your family. Everybody's got a different thing they're battling. But if the Lord inspects us, don't let him lift the leaves and we have nothing there. Let's make sure that our confession matches our life. And if nothing else, you just say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. And that'll go a long way towards helping us. Amen.